Bible reading is from uh, Matthew chapter 22, verse 15 to 46. Then the Pharisees went out and laid plans to trap him in his words. They sent their disciples to him along with the Herodians. Teacher, they said, we know that you are a man of integrity and that you teach the way of God in accordance with the truth. You are always... You aren't swayed by others because you pay no attention to who they are. Tell us then, what is your opinion? Is it right to pay the imperial tax to Caesar or not? But Jesus, knowing their evil intent, said, You hypocrites, why are you trying to trap me? Show me the coin used for paying the tax. They brought him a denarius, and he asked them, Whose image is this and whose inscription? Caesar's, they replied. Then he said to them, So give back to Caesar what is Caesar's, and to God what is God's. When they heard this, they were amazed, so they left him and went away. That same day, the Sadducees, who say there is no resurrection, came to him with a question. Teacher, they said, Moses told us that if a man dies without having children, his brother must marry the widow and raise up offspring for him. Now there were seven brothers among us. The first one married and died, and since he had no children, he left his wife to his brother. The same thing happened to the second and the third brother, right down to the seventh. Finally, the woman died. Now then, at the resurrection, whose wife will she be of the seven, since all of them were married to her? Jesus replied, You are in error because you do not know the scriptures or the power of God. At the resurrection, people will neither marry nor be given in marriage. They will be like the angels in heaven. But about the resurrection of the dead, have you not read what God said to you? I am the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob. He is not the God of the dead, but of the living. When the crowds heard this, they were astonished at his teaching. Hearing that Jesus had silenced the Sadducees, the Pharisees got together. One of them, an expert in the law, tested him with this question. Teacher, which is the greatest commandment in the law? Jesus replied, love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your mind. This is the first and greatest commandment. And the second is like it. Love your neighbor as yourself. All the law and the prophets hang on these two commandments. While the Pharisees were gathered together, Jesus asked them, What do you think about the Messiah? Whose son is he? The son of David, they replied. He said to them, How is it then that David, speaking by the Spirit, calls him Lord? For he says, The Lord said to my Lord, Sit at my right hand until I put your enemies under your feet. If then David calls him Lord, how can he be his son? No one could say a word in reply. And from that day, no one dared to ask him any more questions. Thanks, Nicole. Uh, my name's Toby. Uh, I'm one of the pastoral staff here at uh, St. Stephen's. And I think I was in year nine when Brian met, first met uh, Ben and Lorian as well. So uh, you can do some maths on that uh, to work that one out. Um, hey, this is a great passage. There's a lot in it. Um, so why don't I pray uh, before we kick off? Uh, Lord, Heavenly Father, thank you for tonight. Thank you that we get to gather together as your people Uh, We pray right now that as we open your word, you might teach us your wisdom, uh, that we'd recognize it as good uh, and celebrate it in our lives. Amen. 
We're going to start off with a story, a hypothetical story. Uh, there was a man who committed, uh, who, who was committed to the discovery of wisdom, uh, to ultimate wisdom. He's convinced that it exists, and so if he could discover this piece of understanding, it would unlock every conundrum ever presented. Uh, this piece of wisdom would lead him to understand the truth of all things uh, and understand everything in its entirety. Every problem would have a clearly discernible solution. Ethics and morals would no longer be ambiguous. Even the greatest challenges that the world might face would be able to be solved by this man. If only he could obtain this ultimate wisdom. And so he searched. And he searched for this wisdom, and he came across interest. And interest was compelling for him. It was exciting. He found a topic he liked and he pursued it. But eventually, even the things that he was interested in became boring. And so he kept searching. And he came across philosophy. And philosophy looked even more promising than interest as he sat there and pondered the deep existential crises of the day. But as he came to his conclusions, they remained conceptual. And he was convinced that wisdom should be practical. And so he moved on. He moved on to social justice, trying to solve each issue one at a time, which was good. There looked like there was fruit there as he solved one issue. He could then stop paying attention to that, went to a different issue, and started to attend to that. But sure enough, the first issue reappeared, and there was no longevity sustained. And so he moved on. And he searched, and he searched, and he searched, until one day, wisdom came knocking on his door. And caught up in his research, he yelled out, Go away! I'm searching for wisdom. So wisdom left him alone. I fear we're more like the man than we want to admit. We don't appreciate and we don't admire wisdom when it's presented to us. Often we may not even recognize it. Maybe we just outright reject it. But potentially even more dangerous than that is that we try to define it that we attempt to make ourselves the authors of wisdom, which means that as we approach God's word, we're making ourselves the arbiter and the judge of what is good. Across these four sections in the passage tonight, this is the test that's on display, human wisdom up against God's wisdom. And the question that we need to answer for ourselves is will we see King Jesus' wisdom as supreme? Well, across the last few weeks, we've been following Jesus' journey towards the cross. He's in Jerusalem at this point. He's days away from being arrested and crucified. And as that event draws nearer and nearer, the hostility and opposition against Jesus has been increasing and increasing, particularly the Pharisees. The religious leaders of Israel, they've been ramping up their efforts to discredit Jesus and to dishearten his disciples. And this onslaught against Jesus continues, and in our passage tonight, it takes the form of both political and theological debate. 
The first one is a political debate where the Pharisees have gotten together to brainstorm how might we outmaneuver Jesus. Their collective knowledge surely should give them an edge on how to diminish Jesus' influence over the crowds that are swarming around him. And so they set a trap for him. In verse 15, the Pharisees went out and laid plans to trap Jesus in his words. Their plan is to get him to say something that will make him an enemy of either the Roman Empire or the Jewish people. And so they choose a topic already, uh, one of frustration and controversy. It's a brilliant move from them. Uh, They pose a question, they've come up with a question that Jesus should have no positive outcome with, no good way out. They've backed him into a corner. Have a look at verse 17. This is the question. They send uh, their acolytes out to ask him. Uh, Verse 17, tell us then, what is your opinion? Is it right to pay the imperial tax to Caesar or not? As you can imagine, tax uh, was as loved back then as it is today. Uh, But particularly, this imperial tax was one that Roman citizens didn't pay, but only the people subjected to their rule. And this meant that it was a constant and expensive reminder that the Romans were in charge. So what happens if Jesus endorses this tax? Well, it would imply that he's endorsing the Roman Empire, implying that the Jewish people shouldn't be their own independent nation set aside and set apart like God had said they were. But if he rejects the tax, then he's rejecting the rule of the Roman Empire. He'd he'd be liable to be arrested for insurgency and rebellion. On the surface, it looks like a lose-lose situation for Jesus, except... Jesus' wisdom is supreme. The king's wisdom is supreme. And so in verse 9, he asks for a coin from the Pharisees' acolytes. He might have had a coin on himself, but instead he gets them to pass one to him. And in that action, they show that they use and they rely on the Roman Empire. It's the economy of the Roman Empire that they trade in, that they buy their food with. It's actually the roads that the Roman Empire maintains that their carts and donkeys go up and down. It's the Roman army that provides the social security and stability that allows the Jewish people to live well. The Pharisees and the Herodians, they benefit and use what the Roman Empire provides. And so they've pitched this question thinking that there is only two options that Jesus has to choose Rome or Israel. But in their own actions, the Pharisees' acolytes have shown that rather it can be Rome and Israel. So this is Jesus' wisdom. As he holds the coin up, in verse 20, he asks them, whose image is this and whose inscription? And of course they say, it's Caesar's. It wasn't a trick question. And so Jesus says, well, pay to Caesar what is Caesar's. This means that it's good and right for Christians, for Jesus' followers, to pay tax. As followers of Christ, we shouldn't try to avoid it. When Naomi and I moved to Normanhurst, uh, the movers uh, offered us a cheaper rate if we pay cash. 
And I sat down and I thought, what, how do we respond as people living with Christ as King? We said, well, it would be cheaper, but actually it is more godly to pay the tax as well. And so we did the direct deposit thing and paid the tax. Uh, and we're convinced that that is a godly decision. But Jesus actually goes further than just give to Caesar what is Caesar's. Still in verse 21, he says, and give to God what is God's. Well, if the coin has Caesar's image on it, where do we see God's image? His inscription. It's up. Back in the beginning of creation, in Genesis 1, God made man in his own image. Point is simple. Brothers and sisters, are we giving to God what is God's? Do you give yourself over to him? Well, with no way out, Jesus actually comes up with an answer, gives them an answer with such wisdom that they are left amazed. And so they went away. For all their religious and political wisdom, the Pharisees' trap is dismantled easily. This is the supreme wisdom of our king. The next trap is set by the Sadducees, a different group of Jewish people, Jewish aristocrats effectively, happy enough to live under the Roman Empire uh, because they, they maintained a re relative level of prestige. Uh, but they were equally religious as the Pharisees, uh, except they would only read and hold to the teachings in the Torah, the Pentateuch, uh, the first five books uh, of the Bible. Uh, and theologically, uh, they did not believe in the resurrection of the dead. The trap that they try to lay for Jesus is not political like the first one, but rather it's theological. And so they approach Jesus, uh, calling him teacher and rabbi, uh, similar to the way that the Pharisee acolytes did. Uh, and they inquire about a specific practice of a very specific Deuteronomic law. Now, the law that they're referring to uh, pops up in Deuteronomy chapter 25, and it's only two little verses. Uh, it's a relatively obscure law uh, that no one really seems to be confident about how well this was actually enforced and practiced, especially around Jesus' time. According to this law, that if, if a woman is married to her husband and her husband dies without a son, that hu the, her late husband's brother should marry her, have a son, and that that son would carry on her late husband's name. Now, this law is ultimately about ensuring that a name would be continued, not lost uh, to history, and that an inheritance is secured. And so that is the law that the Sadducees use to raise a situation, probably hypothetical, uh, but possibly real. Uh, and it's that a woman had married her husband, her husband dies with no son, and so she marries her brother-in-law, he dies, and it's repeated uh, until uh, five more times. All of the brothers, seven brothers all up, uh, have all married her, have all died, and eventually uh, she passes away as well. And so the question that, that the Sadducees ask in verse 27 uh, is who is going to be married to this woman at the resurrection? They're attempting to trap Jesus in a logical contradiction. The resurrection can't be real because God's law doesn't work if there is a resurrection. Does that make sense? 
And so how does Jesus respond to this theological entanglement? He responds by highlighting two key things. Have a look in verse 29. Jesus says to them, You are in error because you do not know the Scriptures or the power of God. There's a bigger problem than marriage at the resurrection going on. The Sadducees, they don't know the Scriptures and they don't know the power of God. But Jesus does answer the marriage question and well, as well. In the new creation, people won't be given in marriage, nor will they marry, but rather we will be like the angels. And I think what that means is that we're going to be eternal beings, right? neither born nor dying. The law they've chosen is about securing the name of a deceased husband, uh, but the husband won't be deceased, he'll be there. He'll be eternal. His name doesn't need securing because he will endure for eternity. There's a small note here that I think we, uh, it's not the point of this passage, but I think it's important uh, and it does get raised. And that is that we need to be wary not to idolize marriage here. Marriage is not the ultimate closeness, the ultimate relationship that we should be pursuing. It's good. But even that will pale in comparison that when in the new creation, we'll be, our relationship will be full with Christ, not needing or lacking any more or less intimacy than everything that Christ brings. And so be wary of idolizing marriage, whether that's uh, for your kids or whether that's for yourself. Marriage is good, but it is not our ultimate relationship. Our relationship with Christ will be fully realized and better than marriage. Even marriage will pale compared to the relationship we will have with Christ in the new creation. The bigger problem, though, is that they don't know Scripture and they don't know the power of God. So Jesus takes them to the Scriptures to help them understand. I I like to imagine here that rather than Jesus chastising them, uh, hammering them, uh, for, for their ignorance. Rather, he, he's kind of excited. He goes, well, Sadducees, you guys love the Scriptures and I love the Scriptures, so let's both go to the Scriptures uh, and I'll teach you what you've missed. Let me teach you how to handle the Word of God. And so he takes them to Exodus chapter 3. This would have been a well-known verse throughout Israel, almost like a memory verse for the nation. This is the declaration uh, that this is who our God is. This is the God of our ancestors who is and has been with us for generations, the God who has set us apart. And Jesus teaches them and us something incredibly important here, and that is that the details matter. The theology of the Sadducees goes askew because although they might know the Scriptures, they have not been attentive to them. They haven't considered them properly. And so all Jesus does... In verse 32, as he reads them, this Exodus 3, verse 6 passage, I am the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, the God of Jacob. He is not the God of the dead, but of the living. Did you notice what tense that quote is in? It's the present tense. It's ongoing, continuous. God is still the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. And therefore, Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob are living. God is the God of the living. The resurrection is a fact. Sadducees, learn how to read the scriptures. Brothers and sisters, be attentive to the word of God. 
And because the resurrection is a fact, it means there is more to live for than just this world, than just this moment. There's eternity in the resurrection. And Jesus says in the Gospel of John, I am the resurrection. The resurrection is real. Eternity is waiting. Do you follow the King who is the resurrection? This theological, illogical contradiction, again, has a depth of understanding brought to it with Jesus' wisdom. I hope you're starting to appreciate just how supreme the wisdom of the King is. The last trap put before Jesus in this section is one that we actually can be tempted to fall into today. It's a question of primary and secondary importance. The Pharisees, they're having another go at him, uh, hoping that Jesus might this time inflate one command of the Lord's as more important than another. So that they might then be able to say, well, how could you say that that command is more important than this command? Is not all of God's law to be taken seriously? The Pharisees want the high ground to be able to say there's no such thing as primary and secondary issues. There's no greater or lesser command. All of God's law is crucial. This is the trap they're hoping Jesus will stumble into when they ask in verse 36, which is the greatest command in the law? And I I wonder what you might have been expecting Jesus to answer. If you were in the crowd waiting with bated breath, what is Jesus going to say? For me, my my initial thought would be, oh, it's going to be one of the Ten Commandments, probably the first one. You will have no other gods but me. That, That sounds like a pretty important command to uphold. But instead, Jesus takes them to the Shema, uh, a section in Deuteronomy uh, that sets the, really opens up uh, the declaration of God's law to his people. Now, this passage in Deuteronomy 6, it's setting the foundation of how do you understand and interpret the rest of the law. And so Jesus quotes from it uh, in verse 37, saying, love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your mind. This is the foundation of faithful living, both for the Jew and now for the Christian, to devote ourselves to the Lord with every part of who we are. But Jesus gives more than was asked, because the love of God is unbreakably linked to the love of others. And so he gives the second greatest command in verse 38, to love your neighbor as yourself. All of the law, all of the prophets find their foundation in these two commands. Jesus has just summed up all of what the Pharisees teach in two commands. This is the wisdom of the king. And if these are the two greatest commands, we have to ask ourselves the question, Do you hold on to these two commands in your life as tenants? Do you seek to fulfill them with utmost care? I suspect for most of us, our actions are loving for the most part. Maybe maybe neutral when we're having a bad day. But our hearts and our minds, I think, more likely run rampant with gossip, with anger, with judgment upon other people. I think we're much less disciplined 
with our thoughts and our affections. And if I'm honest, I don't think I spend enough time cultivating my soul towards God. At least I spend time trying to coach my thoughts and my affections towards godly patterns, but I I think I need to spend more time meditating deeply on God's Word in, in ways that just change the very being of who I am. So that I just, I fix my hopes on things above. Do you value what God values? Do you make what matters to God matter to you? If we do this, it can't help but flow out in the love of your neighbor. It's the natural flowing on. It's, it's the love of God imitated by his people. The book of 1 John says that we love because he first loved us. As we become more like Christ, we will love our neighbors. But you have failed to love your neighbor this week. I have failed to love my neighbors this week. We need to work out who, we need to work out why, we need to repent, and we need to love our neighbor as ourselves. This is the supreme wisdom of the king. And at this point, I imagine Jesus is tired. He's had three different groups come and throw their best at him. He's worn out, he's fed up. He's fielded their traps. He's dismantled each one with ease. He hasn't needed long-winded 35-minute sermons or highly technical going back to the Hebrew or the Greek, but rather just simple, profound responses that address, address both the heart of the issue and the heart of the people asking the prophet. And so now it's his turn. He has a question for them. Verse 42, what do you think about the Messiah? Whose son is he? And the Pharisees answer, both predictably and correctly, they say that he will be the son of David. And so Jesus goes deeper. How is it then that David, speaking by the Spirit, calls him Lord? For he says in Psalm 110, The Lord said to my Lord, sit at my right hand until I put your enemies under your feet. If David calls him Lord, how can he also be his son? And the Pharisees have no answer. You would think the religious leaders of Israel would have been able to answer questions about the Messiah. This is their thing. This is the person they've all been waiting for, and yet they are silent. And I think it's because we don't really get the complexity of what's just happened, especially as Christians who understand who Jesus is But the question actually gets exactly at the heart of what you think about the Messiah. See, the Pharisees, they were thinking of the Messiah as someone like David, an earthly king. But David himself professes that the Messiah is going to be greater than David. Not an imitation of David like a son imitates their father. No, no, the Messiah isn't going to be like David. If anything, David is a human imitation 
of the Messiah, because the Messiah is the Son of God. He's the divine and heavenly King. He will be a king in the Davidic line in that he, he'll come from the family tree of David, but he'll be better and greater than David ever was, one that even David, also active and calls him present tense Lord, because the Messiah is the Son of God, not just the Son of David. His kingdom is greater than David's. David's rule was one established by conquest and conquering and war and armies and full of sin and debauchery. But Jesus' rule is through the laying down of his life for those he serves. His rule is one of service and sacrifice. The Pharisees cannot comprehend a king who would rule like this. But this is the supreme wisdom of the king. To empty himself, to become human, to obey God to the point of death, even death, on a cross, what a wonderful king. A king worthy of being followed. And so I return to my first story. Do you recognize wisdom when he knocks at your door? Do you recognize that Jesus' wisdom is supreme? Or delight in his instructions? Be amazed at his teaching. Be in awe of his wisdom and surrender to him as king. Let me pray. Lord, thank you for Christ Jesus, the Messiah who is greater than David, whose wisdom is without fault. As we hear his instruction, help us to delight in his goodness. May your spirit shape us so that our whole being loves you with all that we are, and that we might love our neighbor as ourselves. Help us not see Jesus as anything other than the Lord of David, the one whose enemies will be under his feet, the king who serves by sacrifice, and who is wise beyond all kings. Amen.